So on to our, on to our final speaker for this evening. So um, I've been dying to see our last speaker for a while, actually. Um, she's shot down this evening from Manchester on the train. Um, uh, and so her, so her name's Claire Mukherjee. I think I've got that right. And she's an expert in all things urban design. She's currently working as a project lead at Future Cities Catapult, which is a new type of organisation which is government-funded and brings together uh, cities and businesses and universities to develop innovative solutions uh, to, for future cities' needs. Um, so when she's not doing that, she also harbours ambitions to still make her fortune through oil paintings, I believe, uh, and through landscape paintings and things. Um, but before working for Future Cities Catapult, she also worked for uh, uh, Gell Architects based in Copenhagen and we screened um, a documentary which I think we're going to see at the beginning here in the office called The Human Scale which is a fascinating documentary which sort of tipped me off about this sort of way of thinking within urban design so I'm very excited to have her this evening so please give a warm welcome to Claire thank you um, thank you so much to Made by Many for having me and also for this lovely event. I think it's such a generous and lovely thing and the speakers before have been amazing. Um, so I'm going to talk about the human scale in the city which um, has been illustrated so beautifully by the two other speakers. So not every practitioner who works in the city thinks like these people and our cities are not made by people who necessarily consider the human perspective or in fact our kind of natural instincts, needs, sociability, etc. Um, so I want you to kind of like zoom out a little bit from what we've been listening to and kind of think of the city at that kind of like big scale and the big challenges um, that they face because we're not just playing in them and looking at beautiful, legible London. So to start off, I'm going to show the, the very beginning of that documentary that Paul just mentioned. Um, I was very lucky to work for one of my heroes um, who this documentary is about. And I think it kind of sets the scene very nicely. So I'm just going to play, I think it's just five minutes of this. So I'm just going to leave it there. I mean, he goes on to explain now kind of the 20th century and what we all know about modernism. And it's kind of turning buildings into almost machines for living, um, where we kind of lose the idea that these are places, social places, and that their primary kind of function is for us to kind of feel nurtured in them. And actually, it becomes a very utilitarian um, approach to the city and that legacy um, we're still kind of having to having to deal with today so I'm now going to switch to my presentation um, and I guess the the philosophy that Yangel developed was like really trying to understand how we experience the city and we experience the city predominantly at eye level you know all of the buildings that go up all around us very rarely apart from when we're trying to wayfind do we look up and it's generally at shop level and the kind of the the interest and the things that 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 that, that we find attractive in a city is um, actually three meter wide shops and a, a kind of regularity to to, di to difference we don't like long glass facades and we like to be able able to see people. We like open buildings at the bottom, which I'm sure you all know, where we can see what's going on inside and we can see other people. And these are all kind of fundamental things about um, the kind of city that we know. And, and, and that's not how cities are generally designed and, and still predominantly around the world. Um, cities are designed by architects and planners from above and they're looking down on plans and models and making decisions and not really looking at it from the, from the person's perspective. And I know as a bunch of designers, um, you all all trained in the discipline of thinking about people and human-centered design and all of those ergonomics, architects and planners are not. 
and it's a very different style of education. And I think um, thinking about our cities and, 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 and that fundamental shift in difference in how we think of them is very, very important. And Yang Gal actually talks about kind of like designing at 30,000 feet and kind of a bird shit architecture, which is just plonking stuff down, which is still, we know, going on um, in many, many parts of the world. So kind of thinking about the human scale in cities, weirdly, is kind of a little bit revolutionary. I mean, we've done it through the ages, but the 20th century kind of obliterated that knowledge, and it, and it professionalized what had been a kind of accretion, a kind of city building through trial and error, through prototyping, as we might call it now, through kind of understanding climate and the socialness of place and, and, and adapting our cities accordingly. And then in the 20th century, it became very professionalized and, and, and became segregated. And we started to forget about social distances and human scale and the fact that um, the kind of levels of intimacy that you get at different, at different levels, the fact that um, we all walk at the same speed, we experience the places at the same, and you, and, and you need to design with those things in mind. Um, this is a very interesting diagram, I think, in terms of using that to then understand the evolution of public space. So back over here, kind of the way that, that, that streets and spaces were animated was through necessary activities. It was things we had to do, like have markets, shop, clean, and we'd all be out on the streets. And a thin top line that there kind of shows this, this, the, the optional activities, the things that you would do, like chat to your friend. But generally, it was just about things you had to do. And that then shifted massively. Um, the, it declined uh, as we were kind of faced with the kind of motorization of places and car invasions of cities. And then again, as that kind of teared off towards the, or has in Northern Europe at least, we kind of see an increase again in, in, in people choosing to spend time in cities and, and social activities kind of coming to, to characterize those places. But again, still, we're kind of, we're in our professional silos and, and, and we focus sometimes on the wrong things. You know, a lot of effort and time goes into thinking about sustainable buildings and bream and lead and all of these things, but often these buildings are surrounded by this. And, 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 and I think it kind of goes without saying that these places are, are not socially or, in fact, environmentally sustainable. And so that we know that there's this kind of determinant that, that urban form creates particular types of social life. And therefore, this is an incredibly important relationship between those two things. There's a hardware and then that, that, that creates and develops a kind of software. And this is, a, you know, this is how we know cycling culture is made and, and, and through really fun things and things like playing in cities. Different types of, of behaviours are, um, are very strong in different places and that's why when you go visit different cities you really feel and sense that, that different culture. And so it's an interaction. We have to kind of really acknowledge when we're designing places that it's, it's the, the way that these two things interplay is very important. You know, we talk about integration a lot, thinking about how the overlapping of uses is crucial in order to, to kind of make a healthy and vibrant place. This is obviously deeply unintegrated. This is integrated. Bus stop next to flower shop, next to post office, all of these things. But I think this kind of this understanding and, and how um, kind of the socialness of place and, and the way our choices, our human behaviours, and then how that can change... Um, or how designers can change the city through that, is slightly underdeveloped. So this is a project I worked on a little bit with Gal, which was looking at Times Square. And Times Square was, well, New York's one of their main public spaces, but it was completely car-dominated. Um, and often tourists would arrive there, and they'd be like, where's Times Square? And you're like, you're here. Um, 
And the, the Transport commis Commissioner, Janet Sadiq Khan, really wanted to do something about this. But New Yorkers were kind of like, this is not Europe. We don't want your cafe culture. I like getting a really fast cab from, from downtown to uptown. Don't, you know, don't impose your, kind of, your lattes on us. Um, and so very cleverly, what she did was she put together a plan where she, her main aim was to increase... Uh, taxi times from downtown to uptown by kind of rationalising the space on Broadway which goes into Times Square and dissects it. So rather than kind of going out and doing a mass consultation, which anyone who works in the built environment knows that that's kind of how you go about doing things. You do surveys, you do design charrettes and you know you get the usual people turning up saying the same old stuff. Um, what this is is a pilot project which the idea is that you do a consultation at one-to-one. -one. You spend very little money, you try it out with cheap furniture and you do it overnight and then you see what people, how they behave and what they do with it and what they say about it. And it's a, kind of very, it's a very much more relevant way of doing something because as we all know, if you do a survey, people report all sorts of things that they don't necessarily actually think or believe. Um, and this, was, this cost a million dollars, which when you think of the New York transport budget is nothing. It's absolutely nothing. And they did it overnight using their staff, literally painting the road with fold-out kind of Walmart chairs. Um, it was very, very low cost. And this idea of prototyping the city is fairly new. Um, and I'm sure lots of you have heard about parklets and other things which have taken off kind of subsequently. But it's, it's kind of... Um, it's interesting because in the design world, this has been around for so long, but it's, it's taken so long to get into anyone who works in the, the, the realm of city making to kind of take on some of this, this way of thinking. Um, so, yeah. So now there's this kind of new opportunity around cities. There's, a, there's what some people call kind of smart cities, and we know that there's layers of there's data being produced, there's real-time sensing, you know, as we talked about, city mapper, etc. There's a whole new raft of products and services which are changing the way that we can, that we can affect um, behaviour and the, the feel of our cities. Some people are calling this kind of urban informatics. It's like a deluge of information which designers and others can do stuff with. And so in a way, it's like suddenly we've gone from, you know, really having to just deal with the bricks and mortar to kind of being able to think about how you can affect um, behavior change and, and all sorts of patterns in, in, in different ways. So Smart Cities Agenda was kind of like, when you think of Smart Cities, it was led by the IBMs um, and Cisco's of this world. It was a little bit like um, Ford leaving the charge towards kind of building highways all over America. It was a company-led idea of what the intelligent city should be. It was probably development, concrete, plus IT infrastructure um, equals efficiencies. Um, this is an example of kind of cities. There's this, there's Mazda. There's lots of examples of smart cities going up around the world which are based on a particular type of technology in a particular time which we know become very redundant quite quickly. Um, so we don't make cities to make buildings or infrastructure. We know that. It's kind of what you build has a huge effect on behaviours. Um, so kind of what I'm trying to say here is that there's a whole new opportunity around products and services that can be made in cities. And it kind of requires some of the skills that, that designers have. It's a kind of, it's using the, the methodologies of design and taking them into the city. What lots of designers have used in their practice for a long time, but it's kind of new to people working in transport development and, and others. Um, 
And I think it's, it's really important. And so I think one of the most important questions when dealing with something as expensive, as permanent, as impactful as where we live is making sure that it's not technology-led, making sure that it's solving a really important social problem, that it's high impact and solves some of the challenges, or the most important challenges that we, we all believe um, in the global north, 80% of the city is already built. It's here. So it's a case of what are we going to retrofit it with? What are we, what's the layer of technology and stuff we're putting on top? And in the south, it's just not going to be built by architects or planners anyway. It's going to be built by people. And what are the kind of citizen engagement tools? How can we upskill people and give them the, the, you know, the tools and, and, and other things that can help them do that well um, and in a social way? So, as Paul said at the beginning, I currently work for an organisation called the Future Cities Catapult. It's um, an organisation that's been set up through business innovation and skills, a department. Um, um, I won't explain all of that, but anyway, we got some money. And we were told to try and help grow the, the market in the UK. So we were told to do that by helping the best innovations, the kind of young companies and good ideas who have struggled to scale up for all sorts of reasons like cities only procure with big companies. They have nowhere to test it and trial it and evidence it and produce a proper business case. Um, and to also help cities kind of find the best solutions, UK cities, to those problems and make sure that we become leaders in this stuff because we should be, because we have the best university departments doing some of this stuff. We've got an incredible design community and the, the leading construction and engineering kind of um, industry in the whole world. So this was the number that somebody put to it. Um, these things, yeah, I don't know about that. But anyway, the thing is that we're trying to bring together is kind of the architectural and spatial industries, engineering, kind of infrastructure, project management, the construction companies that we've got, digital, civic, and data. So these are the kind of five areas that we've been brought to try and bring together. Um, so we know the world is, glo is kind of urbanizing, and, and I think this is an interesting statistic that not used that much. 1.2 million people in the next 10 years. That's phenomenal. So London itself is just an amazing testbed for figuring out how do we just pack more people. And we know that there, are, there is badly used space and that there are flats sitting empty, not just millionaire ones, but also ones above shops. And there's all sorts of ways that digital and new products and services could potentially have an impact on this stuff. Um, and, and, and the demographics are also changing, and, and, and that requires kind of has its own challenges. So, the kind of how are we going to move cities into the 21st century? The easiest way is kind of through the products and services, the light touch stuff. It's not the concrete, that stuff doesn't change quickly or easily. Um, so I'm just going to quickly go through a project that we work, that I worked on at the Catapult, um, which was um, partnering with. Guide Dogs, the charity that, that trains the dogs for the blind, and, and Microsoft. And it was really that Guide Dogs decided as a charity they wanted to change their remit because it cost £40,000 to train um, and partner one of these dogs with somebody. And they think that you know, technology has to broaden their remit to be able to reach more people. Um, so we came in and we kind of created a consortia because um, one of the, the things that's reported most about partially sighted people and technologies is, is that, yeah, it helps me a little bit here and there, but there's nothing joined up. There's nothing that gets me from leaving the house to, to where I want to go. You know, it, I can't be switching apps or switching phones or, you know, what I want is something that's seamless across the city. And in order to do that, you need kind of complex, big consortia. So we work with Network Rail, 
um, many councils, um, First Great Western, all sorts of people to order to make this a kind of seamless city journey. Which is, which is good when you're doing it for something like blind people, which everyone's like, yeah, I want to help blind people. Um, less easy when, when it's maybe other things. So um, evidence the problem. We, we joined up with um, the Center for Advanced Spatial Analysis at UCL. They've got this incredible um, the thing he's putting on his head there is an emotive headset, and it's essentially EEG brain monitoring, which used to be confined to the lab, which if you had something wrong, or you wanted to, you'd go and sit in a lab and they'd kind of... Um, fit you up to it. And now it's a mobile kit that just feeds back to an iPad in your rucksack. So you've got this amazing opportunity to, for the first time, quantify your emotional experience to the city. So the, the feeds that are coming out of that um, are to do with frustration, stress, and kind of enjoyment and excitement. And they can start to really support some of the things we already knew, but they also threw, threw up some really interesting insights. So, for instance, um, the charity guide dogs had said that they thought pedestrianised streets were very stressful for blind people. And we found that, that compared to Tottenham Court Road, a pedestrianised shopping street in Reading was much more stressful because it doesn't have any of the, the kind of clues, like the curb line that they usually go on. It's much more crowded, um, and there's lots of A-boards and, and kind of cafe furniture and things. It's almost like an unknown space. And to be able to quantify that and potentially reroute people is interesting. We also found that going through a park was as relaxing to someone who was completely blind than it was as it was to somebody with full sight, which kind of, you know, really shows with great strength this kind of sensory um, effect of our other senses on, on our stress levels. So we evidenced the problem, and then we also built up a whole library of videos, short videos, which really demonstrated the problem, because what we wanted was to not just only help Microsoft build this technology, but is to really show for a kind of industry-wide um, impact the kinds of challenges people face. So this is for the short video. Okay. Thank you. Well, eventually the member of staff did turn up, and... Um, uh, we got as far as the entrance and he said, I can't help you any further and has um, left me here. So I now need to um, call on a member of the public uh, to help me to the number 23 bus. Good girl. Good girl. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Uh, do you know where the number 23 bus stop is by any chance? For Oxford Street. Oh, oh, not to worry. Thank you so much. Don't worry. Yes, I'm sure. Thank you so much. Somebody eventually takes her to the bus stop, but you kind of see there, it kind of highlights the seams in the city that we might not all necessarily realise are there between different 
modal types, but also it kind of it creates this library of design empathy. And I think that's the most powerful thing. Doing these sorts of collaborations are really difficult and, and trying, and kind of building up this empathy kind of allow people in their professional lives to kind of move mountains. And um, that was very powerful. So what came out of this was um, a technology which is an, uh, a, a headset which um, is essentially a bone-conducting headset. So it sits just in front of your ears here, and it transmits sound to your jawbone so you don't block your, um, your ear, so you can still hear sound around you. And it creates a 3D soundscape, which basically it talks to your phone, you put in your journey, and it, it can help you along the street by keeping you on the straight and narrow by creating a sound corridor. So you're going along with your stick, and rather than veering off, it can, can tell you to keep on. It can also help you navigate kind of a, a, a greater distances by creating beacons. So so it can help you wayfind, which is something that, that, that people with that sight loss can never do normally. They have to be on um, routes they've learned, and it's very instructional, and it's, um, it, it, it's, it's very constraining. So these kind of new added-on things, it also told them when the next bus was coming, what bus it was, and, and had uh, these added layers of, of transport um, information. And the innovation here was just that the, the sound is directional, so it's 3D. So the sound arrives... Um, when sound arrives in your ears normally, it's, it's a millisecond difference between one and the other, and it basically replicates that. So it's a tiny innovation, but what really is the innovation is the fact that it's applied to a completely different use case, and it's integrated across a whole city experience. And we work with Nottingham University's Human Factors Department to really create a baseline measure and, and, and measure this impact on, on, on a, a range of well-being measures, which were about orientation, but also feelings of confidence um, and, and other things. So, so this is a kind of, for Microsoft, this was revolutionary. I mean, work, you know, working in this way was, was really out of their out of their way of doing things, but then to, to really look at impact as the goal was, was kind of revolutionary for them. And, and, and really, I think, um, they, they were all really, really excited by the results that came out of it. So sorry, I didn't explain. The pink on the inside is um, the, the reading before, and the blue is the in enhanced experience with the technology, um, which is really statistically very significant. Um, so I don't know how I'm doing for time, but okay, I'm fine. So I'll quickly just talk you through one of the project, just to give you a kind of sense of what we do at the Catapult, um, which is around a project called Sensing London, which is about creating um, high-density um, sensing um, across big areas of the city. And lots of sensor networks. We have sensor networks in the city already. Um, sorry, these are air quality sensors. Um, but they are very spaced out. They're very high-quality data, but they're very expensive. And so we're looking at kind of low-cost, high-density sensing, and what are the, some of the things that you could do around that. So we're creating a joined-up network in lots of places like Brixton, Enfield, Tower Hill, but also Hyde Park. And this is um, another um, a kind of thing off the back of that, which uses... Um, um, phone data to basically show um, visitor flows around the park and then we've created a kind of interface um, for really park staff to have, a, to have an understanding of that and so, so what we're trying to do really is try and take some of these technologies and then understand the use cases for them, demonstrate them to help support and grow that market um, so I'll just say a little bit about 
what we're kind of set up to work with companies, which is why I'm telling you about it, because I presume some of you work for small companies and might be interested in coming and joining some of our collaborations. One of our main remits is to work with SMEs to help people grow and scale up. So you should come and talk to us. Um, we are going, moving to a new building in a couple of months, which is in Clerkenwell, just on Clerkenwell Green. And it's going to be a kind of semi-public-facing place where you can... Um, there'll be lots of events, um, and so you should go to the website and sign up for mailing this. And the kind of three main ways we work is around platforms, data platforms, data synchronization. We have a lab facility with lots of data scientists, um, which are convening public and private data sets. Places, we, we kind of barter relationships between big urban developers and cities who are looking for innovations and help, helping find places for pilot projects, really. And then through products, urban prototypes, and thinking about what the future products of the city might be. And that's it. Thank you. That, that was great. Thank you so much, Claire. Um, I've got lots of notes here. So I, the main thing for me was it really interesting was seeing how, you know, we see user-centered design here, maybe many in a very sort of uh, application, mobile, screens way. So it was really interesting. I think that's the thing that really hit me seeing your talk tonight and also the uh, documentary in the first place is how that's applied in, in urban spaces and that those sort of gaps in between things. So, yeah, that really hit it for me. So... If there is anyone in the crowd, the lovely Heather has a microphone, so please raise your hand. What I would ask uh, is, how do you, what sort of like small businesses uh, are you working with, or like what type of projects are they currently working on that you sort of like work with essentially? Like what, what, what sort of stage are they at, and what type of like challenges are they trying to solve usually? So at the moment, so we've only been going for 18 months, so we're still kind of coming out of our early, early stages. But one of the, the, the small companies that worked on the Cities Unlock project was um, the first producer, manufacturer of beacons, um, which is part of how that technology works. And so rather than Microsoft going to um, Estimote, which is the biggest one, I think, in the US, we brought in MyBeacons, and it's been their kind of big use case outside of retail, which they've really struggled with to find a kind of another use case, especially in the public realm. So that's kind of how we've worked with them. Um, we're going to work with um, lots of companies. Maybe Teresa is actually better to answer this question. She is our SME person. Do you want to say something, Teresa, rather? Sure. Hi, everyone. Hello. Um, yes, yeah, so just like Claire was saying, so at the moment, we haven't been going for that long, but... Mostly we've been working with small companies in projects. Um, we focus around sort of really early stage kind of um, futures thinking, so technology readiness levels of quite low, where we're just trying to make a proof of concept, for example. And then we also try to work with uh, those companies that have a proof of concept, but maybe they haven't really tried, all, tried that in the city, for example, or need to take it to the city to actually make the business case. So there'll be more like four or five year old companies that, you know, they're ready to kind of take a big step. So we're at the moment, and I'm not sure if you'll know, but they're, they're based in Liverpool. They're called Red Ninja and they do a lot of data visualization and data analytics. And they have all these great ideas about how to use um, these new technologies to help um, drive ambulances faster and is more easily to um, to access, well, this is a bit, <laughs> but, you know, to, to the places where they need to get. So it's just kind of looking at that integration aspect. And at the end of the day, it really varied, and 
really looking at how they can use their technologies to address a problem that we have. So, I mean, anyone is welcome to come and talk to us, really. Thank you. We've got a couple. We've got a couple. Uh, hi. Oh, hi, my name is Noel. Um, that was really interesting. Um, just one thing. I was just wondering, how do you define what's a city uh, case? Or how, what's a city issue? What defines, like, a city issue? Because, like, you're, um, you're blind people, um, yeah, transduce your Bluetooth beacon thing. Uh, obviously, it could be construed as maybe a personal thing. And what makes something like an infrastructure city thing? Um, yeah, I'm just wondering how you define what what classed as a city, a future city issue yeah. that needs to vent. Yeah. So I think there are fairly well defined like challenges, um, and when mayors are kind of surveyed across the world, their number one problem is transportation or housing, and so anything that helps people move around better. Um, or can house people and increase, obviously, energy and waste and, and, and those sorts of fundamentals, those I would I'd classify as, um, as a city issue. There's also then other ways that we cities compete in terms of quality of life, the kind of talent they can attract. So it kind of then that starts to really kind of get to the fuzzy edges. The reasons we were really interested in Cities Unlocked is because that's a really particular use case which has much broader application. And when you think about anyone arriving in the city could potentially be classified as blind, you know, in Japan. I mean, there's, like, all sorts of ways that you, that you could apply that technology elsewhere. So I think something which addresses a really obvious, important need, and then something which is scalable and replicable. Like, you can, you can do it in one city and another. So, for instance, somebody who was trying to, like, do something which was very specific and about placemaking... I don't think is relevant to, to maybe some of the challenges we're trying to do. We're looking for really high-impact stuff. Hi, um, I'm Aileen. I was just wondering, based on what you were just saying, what is out there just now that you're getting most excited about with the potential of? Um, well, at the moment, I think I'm really excited about distributed manufacturing. That's just my, maybe my pet project. But the idea that um, that kind of there's a new way that we, I'm sure lots of you know about, the kind of like fab lab. CNC milling, the way that, that, that we're making things in a very different way, and it's not necessary. We're breaking that kind of global distribution chain from having to, to send a design out to China to have it made and, and ship back. And I think that could potentially have a really interesting impact, not only on the way we experience places, but also types of jobs and the economy. So thank you so much, Claire. Um, you. Cheers. <laughs>